this is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello folks, Ben here. This is A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers, episode 225. And happy to tell you that my guest this week is Mitch Epstein, who for many of you will not need much of an introduction, but um, anyway, as always, I will give him one anyway. Before that, uh, let's do a bit of housekeeping and a few ad reads. Please bear with me. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Capture One Pro, the professional photo editing software for every photographer that allows you to shoot, edit and collaborate wherever you find yourself from the most controlled studio environment to the unpredictability of the open road. Stick around, by the way, because there's a big discount on offer here. Capture One's powerful, easy-to-use set of tools feature true-to-life colours and superb image quality, lightning-fast tethered shooting, speedy and smart shortcuts, and an on-the-go workflow for both desktop and iPad. And Capture One Live makes remote collaboration, both for getting feedback in real-time and post-shoot, faster and easier. Free-to-use, collaborators can access images and leave feedback from any device. Whatever stage you're at in your photographic trajectory, in 2024 you can tell your best stories yet and bring your vision to life with Capture One Pro. Try it out yourself for 30 days for free at captureone.com and get an exclusive 30% discount on their yearly all-in-one subscription by using the coupon code ASMALLVOICE24 at checkout. So that's a 30% discount if you use the code ASMALLVOICE24 at checkout. Okay, what else have I got to tell you about? Um, I will introduce Mitch in a minute, as I have said. Oh, quick one. Um, Just a quick Kickstarter campaign that I wanted to give you notification of, because, you know, I'm very happy to do this for friends and friends of the podcast who've got a Kickstarter running to um, raise funds to publish a book. And that is indeed the case for the lovely Lydia Goldblatt. She is uh, trying to raise funds to do a book with Ghost uh, of her work that she has talked about um, previously on the, on the uh, I think on the uh, members only edition of the podcast when we had a little check-in was that members only anyway we had a check-in I think uh, well during COVID basically was when she started working on that project anyway point being if you want to support it if you want to pre-order a copy go to Kickstarter type in the word fugue f-u-g-u-e and it will pop up have a look this podcast is also sponsored by PicTime, the advanced online gallery platform for photographers that combines flexible, beautiful client galleries for seamless photo delivery, customizable layouts, built-in slideshows, a full blogging feature, and client-specific print shops with powerful marketing automation tools to help you maximize your revenue. New for 2024, PicTime is now available as a mobile app. Access your galleries on the go, find what you need, post directly to social media, improve your client experience, select and download images from the app, and save them directly to your device. You can find and install the PicTime app in the EOS App Store and Google Play Store. And you can try PicTime yourself completely free for 30 days by signing up for a trial period at pic-time.com and enter the code of small voice to get an exclusive bonus month when upgrading to any PicTime paid plan. Elevate your photos and build a successful business with PicTime, the all-in-one platform to deliver, share and sell your prints. That's pic-time.com, now available also as a mobile app. All right, um, let me introduce Mitch, whose work, of course, many of you will already be familiar with. This is basically the bio from Mitch's own website, which I've abridged a little bit, but this is the essence of what's on there. Mitch Epstein helped pioneer fine art 
colour photography in the 1970s. His photographs are in numerous major museum collections, including New York's Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Whitney Museum of American Art, the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and the Tate Modern in London. In October of 2024, Gallery d'Italia in Turin, Italy, will present a major multimedia exhibition of Mitch's project Old Growth. And in September 2024, Old Growth will be shown in New York at Yancey Richardson Gallery. Mitch's Indian photographs and films, Salam Bombay and India Cabaret, were exhibited in 2022 at Le Raconte d'Arle Festival in France. And Mitch has had numerous other major solo exhibitions in the USA and worldwide. His 17 books, all published by Steidl, include Recreation, Property Rights in India, Rocks and Clouds, New York Arbor, Berlin, American Power and Family Business, which was winner of the 2004 Krasner Krauss Photography Book Award. In 2020, Mitch was inducted into the National Academy of Design. In 2011, he won the Prepecte for American Power. Among his other awards are the Berlin Prize in Arts and Letters from the American Academy in Berlin and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Mitch has worked as a director, cinematographer and production designer on several films, including Dad, Mississippi Masala and Salam Bombay. And he lives with his family in New York City. So that's Mitch Epstein, who I was delighted to have a chat with, and I hope you're going to enjoy it. I think you will. Before I bring you that, a couple of other things. First of all, as always, please remember you can sign up as a member of this podcast, and for £5 a month you can access all kinds of additional bonus material and also support the ongoing production of the podcast at the same time. Also, the archive of 200 previous episodes, no, not 200, well, 175 or something uh, is available if you also sign up as an archive only member that's for three pounds a month so you can access all the previous archived uh, episodes that only the most recent 50 are available here on the free feed you'll find a link at the bottom of the notes on your podcast player app right there on your phone uh, to pod.fan which is where you can sign up and this episode of the podcast is supported by MPB the largest global platform on which to sell your pre-loved used photo and video kit the MPB price commitment provides the best valuation upfront for all equipment with a dynamic pricing engine constantly analyzing current market data and other price factors such as brand age popularity model and condition of your unwanted equipment instant quotes are guaranteed for 14 days and MPB pays you for your camera gear straight away what's more if your gear turns out to be in better condition than expected mpb will increase the amount they pay you for it the average seller earns 700 pounds each time they sell to mpb and now you could get paid even more because camera bodies are currently in high demand mpb has increased the amount you can get paid for yours avoid tedious negotiations ebay seller fees and hidden costs and realize the full value of your pre-loved unwanted camera or video equipment by selling to mpb.com, the simple, safe and circular way to trade, upgrade and get paid for kit, mpb.com. So without further ado, here's the chat I had with Mitch Epstein, who I think you will find uh, fascinating. Now, you're, you're in New York, right? You've always been in New York and you're still in New York. Well, I, I moved here in 1972 hmm. to study at... Uh, Cooper Union, an, um, an art and architecture science school, and New York has been my um, my base um, and really my home, my adopted city yeah. um, since '72. Do you still enjoy the sort of energy of the place as much as you ever have? The city is um, it's it's been challenging really the last few years in particular. Mm. Um, um, Partly uh, the consequences, uh, the economic um, and social consequences of uh, the pandemic, 
Um, and perhaps my own aging. Mm. I, um, um, because, you know, I make my work um, out in the world. Um, I often travel and get to spend time elsewhere. And so the city really um, provides an opportunity for me to um, to produce my work, to conceptually prepare um, for the shoots I do, um, um, and also as a kind of larger um, um, sort of cultural um, and social laboratory to um, to be to participate in. So, uh, but I live um, um, on the Lower East Side of the Manhattan um, of Manhattan, just off of the Bowery, and this um, is a neighborhood where you know for really more than a century um, a lot of the um, the citizens who are down and out um, end up. Uh, we have social service uh, support organizations. Um, but, you know, this has been a period where there are many who um, are under distress and desperate. And um, I think that's always been um, something that, that, in a way, has um, been a meaningful day-to-day -day reminder uh, of the larger world that I'm a part of. But at the same time, um, it's... Um, it's 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 been stressful mm. at times. Mm. I mean, that's a long-winded answer. No, but <laughs> no, no, no. Long, long uh, I'm still committed are, to New York. I'm, what you I'm still committed to New York, uh, and I'm very fortunate to mm. uh, to have uh, my studio here and many um, deep friendships and all the resources that I have drawn on to. Um, uh, to cultivate and execute my practice. Mm. Yeah, well, that's kind of why I was interested, really, because it seems like to me that um, for so many, you know, creative people, artists and photographers that, you know, they're unavoidably influenced by the place that they are, you know, that they're based. And I was wondering in, in what ways that, you know, New York has been an influence in that way. I mean, obviously, you know, your sort of story begins there. Um, you talked about Cooper Union and, and of course, you were taught by Winogrand, whose name is sort of synonymous with making his work, in, you know, on the streets of that place. So, yeah, that's what was kind of why I was interested, really, that, you know, that these places can have a huge influence over the over the years. Well, New York is uh, still, in my view, um, a kind of art and cultural capital. It's... Um, it's frankly uh, nearly impossible to keep up with mm. um, the continuing stream of um, of challenging and 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 meanif meaningful work and all media that get puts out there that gets put out there. Um, I think that you know some of the balance that's shifted is that the city um, has really been going through um, a period of tremendous monetization. And so it is harder, I think, um, for young artists, for artists who want to engage with um, with taking risks in their work, um, to find um, to find to, to 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 find a way in. Mm. Um, so 
you know, look, uh, I'm also very much an advocate for city life and do believe strongly that um, cities are going to be more and more important uh, in so far as our environmental footprint is is concerned um, um, going go, going forward. Mm. Um, we have the potential uh, to be very efficient environmentally. Um, and although American cities are very s- slow to uh, achieve, you know, that better balance, um, the potential is there. Mm. So yeah. uh, no, it's funny. You know, you mentioned sort of the young population how hard it must be for them or even just for normal working people to to live in new york now it's 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 kind of now got a reputation as being you know a place almost exclusively for the wealthy because it's just so hard to to live there otherwise now and i think back to when when you started started out you know where you could live there you know relatively the whole parts of the city that were pretty much of uninhabitable and like whole buildings that you know you could kind of uh, make it work in i guess you must re- must have memories of that time well my first when i first moved here in 72 i rented a room and um, had a uh, kind of a an ad hoc kitchen with a hot plate which cost me 125 dollars a month <laughs> yeah um and uh, yeah, the city, but of course, you know, the city was going through a challenging period um, in the 70s. Uh, it was rougher in certain ways. There was not, it was a very um, compelling time to, to to be here because the city was also going through a transformation. Um, and there was a kind of rich um, artistic um, production, you know, going on. It was really also the very beginning of photography taking hold with, um, within a kind of gallery um, system, Um, you know, and that was, that was an exciting thing to be, you know, to be, to be witness to, to to learn from. it was the it was the era in New York of John Sarkowski uh, as the director um, and real really maverick curator um, at MoMA uh, when in a period when the, the the museum was less corporatized. I mean, he had multiple shows every year. Every every exhibition didn't need to go through a kind of lengthy, you know, from the top down approval process. Mm. Um, and so that 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 fertility, that um, uh, opportunity to engage with contemporary work and um, the way you know it was um, it was just uh, it, it it was very mm-hmm. rich. You could even go at the time to uh, uh, as a student, I had access to go to the MoMA study room. I wasn't doing you know an art history dissertation or. Uh, headed in some sort of professional, you know, curatorial direction. But uh, when John Sarkowski was working with uh, Maria Morris Homburg on the Aceh archives, uh, it was exciting to be present and to be able to um, to see original prints, to handle them, to learn about the medium mm. um, through looking directly. Yeah. 
um, at work. Yeah. Well, ma- maybe you could just so, could you just sort of for, for the younger listeners or for people who aren't familiar, maybe you could explain who John was and and you know the extent of his sort of influence, both kind of generally and on on you personally, because I know you've talked about how you know the way that his articulacy about photography, the way that he spoke about photography was was kind of a bit of a game changer for you in some ways. You know, I think as a photographer, and I think I turn toward photography because I really am more of a visual person than a literary one. And so what what Zarkowski um, provided was a way for me through, you know, one through, you know, his, his curatorial prowess, he called attention to work that I didn't know that I could learn from. But I was, I think, profoundly influenced by um, what a beautiful writer he was and how he could um, articulate very cogently um, his thinking on the medium. And so it helped in some way to demystify some of my own, you know, kind of confusion as a young photographer, as a young artist. Um, And there was a sense of um, kind of cultural community. I mean, it was a bit of a boys club Mm. at the time. Uh, And it's not to say that I was in the inner circle, but I did benefit from uh living through um, those years look i mean you know one of the first exhibitions i saw and uh, and its memory is indelible was um, the dn arbus retrospective it was really in the first year um that i moved to to to, to new york um in 1976, uh, Zarkowski presented a, William Eggleston's work. Um, it was the exhibition titled The Guide. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of the things that I saw at, at MoMA um, and in general were sometimes ahead of me. Mm. I didn't fully get it mm-hmm. all. Even Eggleston, you know, uh, who I saw... As a student at Cooper, I, he came to class. Winogrand brought him to a, um, a class. He had just come from meetings with Sarkowski, um, you know, in planning for his, um, you know, his, his show to be down the road. And uh, he had two carousel fly, uh, carousel trays of slides, and we just sat there and looked at them. I mean, what a, what a. Um, um, you know, brilliant opportunity. Yeah, it sounds like that uh, whole that was yeah, like a, an, an know, informal education yeah. in a way that you could go to this amazing place and 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 you know talk to Sikowski and yeah, I can imagine that was inspiring. well. It wasn't that you know, it wasn't it wasn't that uh, Sarkowski was that it wasn't that his his scholarship and his curatorial work was 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 widely available. I mean, look at the time too. Um, and it was a bit heady in some way, and I don't know that I was really fully ready for it. Um, but there was a practice at MoMA where young photographers, or for that matter, any photographers, could could drop off a portfolio. Uh, I think it was on Wednesdays. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it would be viewed, and sometimes it would come back uh, just, you know, with a courtesy note. And, you know, I think on rare occasion, uh, you'd be called in for a little chat. Um, well, you know, uh, 
you could imagine the sweat on the brow, mm. you know, going up the elevator to, to achieve the portfolio. Yeah. And uh, on one hand, it uh, was maybe, you know, premature for me uh, as a young artist. But on the other, um, it helped to... Uh, to force me to begin to think about issues uh, about the presentation and editing of my work. Um, how did I see it? You know, wh which were the which were the keepers and which were the pictures that I really wanted to commit to. Um, and you know, at the time. Um, in the 70s, I was, you know, first, uh, say, four or five years, I was shooting Kodachrome slides. And um, so um, editing was crucial. Mm. I mean, I never, I didn't have to go to get a, to get, to get a, you know, slides were ready-made. So I didn't have to go. I just shot the film, put it into a Kodak mailer and uh, dropped it in the mailbox and got it back from the Kodak lab in Fairlawn, New Jersey, a week later in a box. And I could put it into a, you know, a stack tray and look at the pictures on the wall at night uh, in my apartment bedroom. Um, but they had to be edited. Mm. And that process of editing, of understanding that photography was a medium that uh, that was so, you know, it was it was so easy yeah. <laughs> to make a picture. But you know what? You know, but but which were the pictures that distinguished them themselves and that were worth a second and third look and so on? Which were the ones that were pointing in a certain direction um, and that you know were. Uh, that ultimately, you know, ha I could fashion some kind of mm -hmm. some meaning um, from. How long do you reckon it so, took you to get good at editing? Was would it would it you know was there a point at which you a lifetime? <laughs> yeah, it, a lifetime. Yeah. It it is a skill. You know, uh, that I mean, takes a while. It's something you know. I'm still learning mm. because in a, it's it's so easy to fall prey to. Uh, to one's infatuations um, and to what one does well, and, and is you know uh, um, is prone to to, um, to 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 staying within a kind of narrow sort of band. So um, I think that's in part why. Um, so as an editor, uh, and also it's both. Um, it's both a, it's it's both been in a way kind of a damnation and a gift um, as a photographer that's had has an extensive archive um, to go back you know as I've um, taken time to you know excavate work from the past to try to understand what was my way of looking at it before and what is my way of seeing it now for instance. Uh, a few years ago, uh, well, over the years I've been looking at it, but really I com committed to looking hard um, in a critical way at work I made in India um, in the 80s. And um, it was the first book um, of mine published by Aperture, I think, in 1987. And uh, I was still in the midst of making pictures in India. I was also working collaboratively with my first wife, Mira Nair, on films. Um, and I was still, in some way, I think emotionally, just, you know, very um, uh, without detachment mm. from the experience itself of working in India as an American, as an outsider, uh, even though I was married to an Indian and I um, 
was um, both, you know, um, on the inside and out. Um, but also, uh, I just didn't, the, 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 there wasn't, um, the, 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 I hadn't, you know, really let the work kind of settle in some way. And so in going back, I see how there were certain pictures that I just didn't, I didn't see clearly the first time around. And also sometimes there was work that was maybe more personal mm. that I maybe felt some kind of resistance to um, incorporating in the oeuvre of what I was doing then. Mm. So, you know, that's a kind of extreme example of, so I published this book with Aperture and then with Steidel um, a few years ago went back and edited and, um, and, and published a, a, a book that kind of rethought that material, uh, some of going back for me, you know, is look, uh, I I've always worked, you know, analog shooting film as a photographer, um, and even for many years had a darkroom, made my own prints, or had somebody coming in and making them for me, um, but with limited controls in terms of um, the management of of color and highlight shadow. I wasn't doing masks, things like that. So when Photoshop came along uh, and I began to scan my negatives 20 years ago um, and realized that I, it was important to, in a sense, um, remaster my key images and projects from over the years, uh, I've done it with a mindset that, e that in some way bears, you know, um, relation to how I might have printed or intended to print the work um, when I made it. So it's not, it's really just using, reading the negative um, um, for what it holds and achieving a kind of fidelity um, um, color bands, but also, um, uh, you know, tonal range from highlight to shadow that is uh, more achievable, more easy to finesse. Yeah. Uh, with Photoshop, mm. so you know these are these are some of the reasons why there's there's value to go back. In fact, I just did um, I remastered the my project um, Family Business, uh, which is a project I did about my father uh, and hometown, 2000 to 2003. And uh, while the book that I did with Stadel, which was my first book, um, I stand by and have no, I feel no need to make any kind of revisions or changes to it. Um, I did see a value in, you know, in, 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 in a remastered edition uh, that will celebrate the 20th anniversary of the mm -hmm. publication, which will, you know, come in the next year um, from Stadel. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's interesting what you're saying because i think so many people are in a hurry to make books you know of projects that they've just finished and and it seems like there's a lot to be said for um just waiting you know and and letting you know having the opportunity to sort of recontextualize those photographs that you took you know maybe 15 or 20 years uh, before the that you mm -hmm. start considering the book it sounds like you're you're a great example of someone who's done that you know, successfully, and, and you seem to value that way of doing things in a way. Yeah, I'm, I'm an advocate for slow photography, mm. which um, um, has, you know, many manifestations. Uh, and uh, look, there's a, I mean, Ste uh, Gerhard Steidel, um, he's a wonderful 
collaborator with the artists that he works with. And I'm always um, benefiting from my conversations with him and from the ideas that are generated uh, um, in the Steidel library that lead to the advancement uh, of the books. But at the same time, uh, I'm not so great at... um, um, you know, it, 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 it making a book in a week's time. I, 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 you know, uh, I change my mind or sometimes I'm just slow to commit. Uh, mm. and, um, you know, that can be whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it can be a distraction. Uh, but it's just, I think, partly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just more uh, introspective mm. at times about things and more contemplative. Uh, so, but th- th- there are times, look, uh, you know, in my practice as a, as a photographer out in the world, I don't, I, you know, um, I can't afford to be, um, to hesitate. I take risks. I make those commitments. I follow through. I don't... Um, it's not like I'm getting to, you know, going to get into a long conversation with myself, except for when I, when I, you know, sort of by instinct smell that, oh, am I doing this just so that I can, you know, say to myself that I've got another picture in the can? Right. Or is this something that's, you know, that I'm, that I'm really, there's a kind of unmediated engagement with that, uh, that's taking me to some place that's not exactly where I've been before. Mm. And I think that that's what's, um, it's self, self, self-criticism is, you know, it's not, it, you know, and, you know, the, um, the Faulknerian concept of relinquishing your darlings. I mean, that's, um, look, this is how um, our society, you know, this, this is the, the, this, this is a product of a kind of, of a sort of, you know, social and kind of uh, cultural human kind of conditioning. Mm. Uh and in the end, one of the, you know, I think the kind of profound things that I learned from Winogrand was that um, it's the pictures that you don't initially understand. It's the ones that are really fundamentally, and maybe fun, ones that are fundamentally flawed that really are taking on risk, um, that perhaps they're unresolved, but they lead you down a, a path and in, in a direction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's rich with opportunity. And so, you know, which is why a lot of my, um, look, I've studied um, the history of photography um, and I know it in a very personal, very idiosyncratic way. I'm not a scholar. Uh, But as a photographer, um, over the years, I've widened um the sources that I wish to you know from which I can draw from to um, to gain knowledge and experience and um, and a, and a kind of critical visual discourse and so um, that has been you know in an, in a kind of fundamental way very important I think photography that just continues to be self-referential uh, to the medium um, and to other photography, um, especially today, um, can you know be um, can be can be limited. Mm, mm. Yeah, so many sort of directions we, we could go in at that point. I mean, I'm, you mentioned Winogrand, and uh, I was wondering about the ways in which he might have uh, 
been influential. I think I think one of the things he said to you was, uh, "Don't worry if it's not art" or something along those lines. Um, you know, what did you sort of glean from that comment that he made? Well, Winogrand was as influential. Um, uh, he he he. Grand, I mean, you know, bluntly got me to. Um, to relinquish a lot of the preconceptions that I brought to his class. I was, first of all, I was 20. Yeah. So, um, but I had been, um, I had been in art school um, at the Rhode Island School of Design, um, but I didn't, and, you know, there were certainly, um, I had good teachers, but nobody that really sort of, um, made me question what photography might be. So um, a lot of the nomenclature of, oh, this is nice or interesting or, you know, uh, um, aesthetic or what have you. I mean, he, 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 he was radical and, you know, not kowtowing to uh, a lot of conventions. Mm. And... Um, um, and really, I think in a way, the most important way that he w was influential to me as a teacher was um, he refused to just sort of hand it over to you. I mean, there were long, there were long, painful passages of silence. <laughs> and in silence, you have to confront your own inner workings, you know, your your, 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 you know, your psychological kind of machinations. And, uh, you know, I, I used to come out from his class out onto the Bowery. And I know I've said, said this before, I've written it somewhere, but, um, you know, tremendously disoriented. But really through disorientation, through not knowing, through being uncomfortable, things happen. And I think some of the most important periods for me in my life as an artist have been those periods where I have ultimately not known what I was doing or where I was going next. Mm. Um, you know, uh, now I'm a little bit better at just listening to, um, to the signals that come along, even though they may not give me, you know, the, 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 the full-fledged answer. They'll, they'll, they'll just point in a direction, and I'm a little bit more patient uh, with, with the process. But it's no different now for me at 71, you know, than it was when I was in my 40s. Mm. Um, and I think that that's really important. I think it's so, for me, what's been motivating is to appreciate the way that photography is a language and it can be used in so many different ways and that those 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 ways of using it as a language are quite inexhaustible and that I think that's part of what gives me faith and confidence in the potential for photography to have um, a kind of critical value um, as a medium when everyone is now a photographer in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, uh, I'm all for the democracy of the medium. Uh, but I think it's important to distinguish uh, everyone as a writer. Everybody can take a pad of paper and, you know, sit at, I don't want to say Starbucks, but, you know, some, their cafe and make a, make a drawing. Uh, 
I mean, it's obviously, I think, harder to make a good drawing than a good photograph, you know, but to make a great photograph, to make a, to put together a project, to build on an idea and to do it with a kind of um, authority um, and, 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 and um, is, um, is, 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 it's another order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's um, it remains a challenge. It will, you know, it's like there's always, you know, you have to have a couple of lifetimes of taking pictures, and it's still there'd always be that um, desire to, you know, keep improving or moving forward, or or sort of, you know, um, keeping things interesting for yourself. It seems like you've done that for sure. But yeah, I mean, wanted to talk about. We'll talk about, I guess, some of the major projects that you've done um, over the years. You know, the, the ones that that stand out. Um, maybe you could help decide which ones we we, we talk about because um, maybe there's some you're, you're fed up for talking about, and some that you know perhaps um, you know you haven't talked about as much as others. But um, uh, you you went to LA in '74. And, and and made pictures in LA. What took you there um, to do that trip? Well, after having studied um, at Cooper for two years, first with Winogrand, um, and then in the second year, I studied with Todd Papa George. Mm. And he was a great follow-up to Winogrand because he, um, you know, shared... Um, a kind of similar um, or related, you know, sort of philosophical um, approach to the medium. But Winogrand taught through his silence as Papa George um, taught through um, his ability to to translate his analytical reading of things uh, into language. And uh, um, and that, you know, again, related to Sikorsky was really, was helpful. But after a couple of years, um, and really sort of, in a way, kind of, I don't know, I guess I, I felt it was a kind of, you know, apprenticeship in a sense, uh, but, you know, really, a, I don't know, how, how do you, maybe apprenticeship isn't the right word, but just, I learned the craft through um, working in some way um, in the shadow of Winogrand's teachings, mm-hmm. walking the streets, being in the park, just, um you know, discovering the city uh, um, through the practice of making pictures. Uh, but, you know, the fact is that um, it, um, it it was, I think, partly this gnawing feeling that it would be helpful, um, especially also as I started to work in color, uh, to... Um, to make a bigger break from the influence of Winogrand. Mm. Um, and, and that I was just ready to, uh, to get out of the city and to, you know, find a kind of new terrain. I was interested in, um, in LA as a kind of a, you know, a cultural base for the movie industry. Um, and for literature, and um, one, uh, you know, I think I also just thought, oh, you know, photography, you know, at the time, and still to some degree, it's a very much a kind of solitary act, mm. um, and that just kind of, you know, getting out um, and spending time in LA would be would 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 be a, an an opportune. 
step to take. Mm. You know, I think that over the years that that maybe that laid the foundation um, for um, a you know method that I've kind of adopted, which is um, to step into worlds that are not my own. Yeah. I didn't. I grew up in New England. I didn't know much about LA other than you know how I saw it in in the movies or you know in literature. Mm. And you know, in so doing, you know, probably you know went the furthest afield when I went to India, mm. in a way, uh, because all the references were foreign. Uh, I was a young, you know, uh, white man in a world that was that had little to do with what um, with what I understood. Mm. You know, it was just the references were all um, they, they 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 were all shifted. So yeah. the, th- the interesting thing about India, of course, is it's been so extensively photographed since then. But I guess at that time, maybe not so much. I don't know if had you seen much photography from there. You know that you know was a kind of conscious or unconscious um, influence that maybe you were trying to, to avoid replicating? Because there's always that danger with, with places that have been so extensively photographed. But yeah, like I say, maybe not so much at that point. Well, the, the, the references, you know, I, I certainly looked at 19th century photography mm. um, and, and less 20th, and I, I would have to say. I think my influences in going to India were more filmic. Mm. Uh, I, because I was also working in film from the beginning, uh, and my way of getting more on the inside uh, was through looking um, at the work of, um, of Indian filmmakers and writers and artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, Satyajit Ray, I saw all of his films. Uh, and um, that opened me to a whole other kind of storytelling and an approach where um, I could see how one could draw from the, you know, the the the, the real world um, and weave it into some kind of a fictional tableau mm. um, and how he was doing that mm. using real locations and at times uh, um, mixing um, extras and so on with real actors uh, yeah. um, to build building these scenarios. Uh, I mean, I was aware and I knew um, uh, Raghavir Singh and was friendly with him, but he was working, you know, in a way, um, under the sort of the, the, you know, the guise of being a National Geographic photographer. And he's, he's fascinating because he is somebody who, in a way, evolved beyond that um, mm. in, his, in his practice. Uh, uh, but no, uh, it was more, um, I, I don't know, there was really no, 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 no model. Also, I was... Um, um, just you know, it was. It, I was just trying to kind of make sense of mm. what it, what, what the, you know, it was also it was so foreign, yeah, yeah, in a way. Uh, but to do so in a way that would have some meaning to me, and then hopefully um, translate uh, to others. Mm. Um, so I was working, you know, with a handmade, a custom-made um, uh, six by nine centimeter camera, um, especially at the beginning. 
uh, I had to do estimated focus. Uh, I had a wide angle lens. Uh, I was shooting negative film. There was nobody, I don't think there was, I mean, I'm sure there are other people working with negative, but nobody else had that camera. Mm. So the pictures had a certain look. Yeah, yeah. They had a certain formal character and they had a certain look as a result of the tool and material. Right. Um, how I used it, where I, I wasn't, a, you know, it, it was uh, the plurality of India, just the, and the way it was layered uh, socially. Um, um, and with the, you know, with the 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 the, the palimpsest of of culture and history uh, um, and religion um, and caste, all of it mixing in some way together was was daunting, but at the same time it was thrilling mm. uh, to try to kind of make sense of it and to draw pictures out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I first went there in the in the nineties, and um, you know, even at that point, you know, it's it, you never quite forget the culture shock of you know being there for the first time really you know um i still remember mm. that vividly but i'm fascinated by this thing this this sort of duality you've got with the with the moving uh image stuff because like how did you learn your way around a a movie camera for instance well what point did that happen did you sort of teach yourself or you just dived in and because there's a very different you know it's a different animal to a still camera um, you know, I had, st look, I had studied film, right? Uh, although I wasn't really making it as a student at Cooper, but I, st I studied with two really interesting, um, um, kind of avant-garde cutting edge filmmakers, Jonas Meckes and, uh, Hollis Frampton. Hollis Frampton was conceptually, you know, way over my head, but he was pretty interesting. <laughs> and, uh, but when I went to India, uh, Really, um, uh, Mira Nair, who you know, we, I was partnered with her, and she she had a kind of appreciation for my photographic work, and she said, "Would you want to shoot um, what was really, to, you know, to be her first full fledged documentary feature film called So Far from India?" Um, and uh, I said, "Sure," um, and. I think I did go to a lighting workshop because I really didn't, you know, I wasn't really, um, I wasn't lighting um, as a, so I, you know, I, I, in a Ouija style, I'd have a flash on my kind of on my camera, sometimes photographing, but I didn't, I didn't, I never, I, I didn't, I never lit interiors or anything like that for my still work. So I learned a bit about lighting um, and um, yeah, it was, I was kind of self-taught. Mm -hmm in a way. Yeah. Uh, but I think I learned so much from looking at film. In the 70s in New York, the city was just rich with these repertory cinemas. Uh, and it was just such a uh, an inspirational time to, uh, to be looking at film. That was one of the things. And even as a young photographer working with color, uh, you know, uh, looking at color cinema was uh, a rich resource. Mm. Um, but it, but, but I, I think that, you know, with film, uh, again, yeah, there was a certain amount of stumbling. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that that's look along the way. I didn't, nobody, uh, I never studied anything technical. Mm. I mean, really, I, 
you know, most of what I learned at school was to unlearn what I already had in my head, but I never, you know, learned to think about livelihood or how to go about, you know, maybe, you know, monetizing my work as a photographer. Um, I learned nothing technical when it came to shooting large format. Um, it's the same thing. Yeah. It was just trial, trial, trial and, trial and error. error. Sometimes it's better to sort um, of, so, yeah, you know. sometimes it's better to just yep. uh, go in with a sort of, um, you know, a, a naivety in a way, you know, that, that you're not um, thinking about all the stuff you don't know, you know, you're just more about. Yeah. I, I think that the fundamental shift for me, though, in India, once I started working in film, was that uh, I, I, I understood that I had to take more responsibility to shape what was in front of the camera. Um, in a way that I was very held back uh, with as a still photographer. Mm. And that really, I think, you know, came, spilled into my still photography practice uh, and triggered an approach where I clearly was less beholden to the idea of a kind of documentary truth. I was really, really more interested in the kind of subjective truth, you know, what sort of mattered, what did I want, how did I want the pictures to to speak to me? And so, you know, that at the same time with film, when I worked on uh, Salam Bombay, which was really one of the my, you know, pivotal, you know, uh, life experiences in, in terms of committing to a project, there was so much that I was able to draw on from my, the, the still pictures I made, the a kind of reading, the kind of ways in which one can create a kind of photographic tableau um, drawn from the real world. Um, and so in the way I spoke earlier about Satyajit Ray, um, that film was a, uh, a remarkable opportunity to weave fact and fiction. And I think that those film experiences, you know, went on also to, uh, to, you know, to, 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 to make me feel more, you know, to bring a kind of freedom to how I approached mm. um, family business, the project, but my father uh, was the first time after working in film collaboratively with Mira, uh, where I realized that a lot of what it was that it was interesting to me was not um, that I just was was beyond what I could engage with and address with still photography. So I went and bought a, um, you know, uh, at the time it was, you could get a halfway decent, you know, um, tape um, video camera uh, and put a good mic on it and work in a kind of, you know, cinema verite fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and then went on to make, a, you know, two films, two short films, one called Dad um, about my father that's got a completely different um, tenor and reach than what I did with the still photography um, work. Um, and so, you know, this is where over time these influences and experiences, you know, kind of resurface. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working now again um, um, in and um, in, 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 in sort of um, some new ways uh, with a project that I'm bringing to some formal place uh, about old growth forests. 
um, in addition to a series of still photographs that I've made over the last three, four years uh, with an eight by 10, looking at some of our oldest forest, walking, you know, some of what remains uh, of wilderness here in the United States. Um, I've also been working on um, um, a couple of projects that uh, um, are able to, you know, to extend um, the work that I set out to do photographically and touch on um, um, aspects of the experience that I've had in forests um, that just um, was not, you know, were not achievable with with, with still photography alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is, um, um, it's like, you know, I ask myself when I start, when I get involved with something, you know, well, wh- what's the tool and material that's best suited um, um, to the work at hand, to what's, you know, to, to what it is that I'm thinking about um, and, and, and what might be, um uh, and, and 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 at times also you know what what is the medium mm. sometimes it could be uh important to write a text or not you know uh um uh, but asking those questions and not knowing and kind of figuring it out as i go along and then and then you know you know creating some kind of boundary um uh, i mean you est- you know for me i establish boundaries just so that i you know know where to get started in the morning yeah you know, it's like okay, I, I got a coffee, and then it's like I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll start somewhere, and just getting started is the hardest mm. thing. So if I have a starting point, um, then uh, even if the starting point itself is something that is not fulfillable or that doesn't really sort of work uh, in terms of say a photographic destination, there's always something on the other side, you know, behind mm. me or what have you, or there's a, there's another. That, you know, it, it leads me. It just gets me out there and out of my head and past the the constriction of self consciousness uh, and all the ways in which I can sabotage my own forward movement. Yes, as we all can, so so often. So it serves its purpose. I'm no different. No. I'm no. I'm no different. I have no secrets. Right. Well, no, but it's lovely to get you know the perspective of of someone uh, you know with your experience, Mitch and. And it's reassuring that we all do still kind of uh, suffer, you know, with the same uh, the same issues one way or another. Um, but family business that, that that was apparent to you that that should be, you know, essentially a sort of multimedia project, as it were. Um, or the, the, it was clear to you at least from the start that you needed something more than just stills. Um, let's talk a little bit about that project um, because you know it was it was like you say mainly about your father he he was um kind of going through some uh, kind of business related crises at the time and um what was your sort of motivation for kind of documenting that as it were although of course you you say explicitly you, you're not a documentarian but the fact that you you made pictures in the first place how did it all come about and you know how did it ultimately become something i guess much more universal you know, in terms of the themes that emerged? Well, look, um, I wasn't looking to do, if I had, you know, just stopped and got this idea in my head that I wanted to do a project about my father, I would have talked myself right out of it. 
but there were some very, you know, troubling and unsettling things that had happened to my father uh, that, you know, that pulled me back home. Uh, in particular, there was a fire uh, in, in a building um, that he owned that took down a whole city block, and he faced a uh, – it was set by two teenage boys – uh, twice, second time it took the whole block down, uh, and he was at risk um, facing um, a you know formidable uh, fifteen million dollar lawsuit for a property that really had you know no, no value. But it, what it did was that it cracked open um, in a way for me that I was more open and ready to. Uh, a, a a kind of access to better understand uh, where I came from and who my father was, um, and to also uh, give me an opportunity or a kind of bridge to get to know my father in a way that I hadn't before, um, but maybe even most profoundly to accept a part of myself that I had kept at bay. Because to gather the strength and the confidence to leave uh, my home place and to go to New York and in some sense uh, to carve out a path that was uh, highly uncertain um, and yet, um, you know, um, something that I just couldn't ignore. Um, I had to repudiate a lot of where it was that I came from. And I think in that repudiation, I, um, I closed off a part of myself to what, we really, what, what, what was sort of essential to my being. My first 18 years, even though I went to boarding school for a few years, were very much uh, the experience of being part of a certain kind of family and growing up in a suburban neighborhood uh, in a you know, small immigrant you know, post-industrial town uh, um, that went through radical transformation uh, over the course of my father's lifetime and my lifetime. Um, so I didn't set out to do a story, you know, about my father that would uh, intentionally achieve a kind of, um, you know, universal platform. But the fact was that my father was a man of a certain generation, uh, of which there were many. You know, he went to, he he was you know enlisted and drafted into the second you know World War. He was in the armed forces. He, but he came back post-war, you know, with a kind of, um, and you know, phenomenal opportunity to you know to develop his businesses and to be successful. Mm -hmm. And he was very successful for a very extended period of time. And that success was built on a certain premise, which is that if you work hard, you'll do well. And I think many men of his generation shared that, um, uh, that belief. Uh, but, you know, as we see, you know, today, you know, uh, social change and technological change, the transformation that occurs in 10 years um, and, 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 you know, is, 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 is quite radical, uh, you know, especially 20. If you think about just, you know, 
technology and the phones and so on. But, you know, from the course of my dad's, you know, working life, business life, um, many changes kind of, you know, uh, kind of, you know, happened, happened rapidly. And my, my dad never really had the detachment mm. to fully take stock of the changes that were in some way unsettling the foundation of his own approach um, to business and community. Uh, so what happened as I kind of started to sort of see through to the larger ramifications of my father's story, um, there was no way that I could turn away from it. It was, it was the, um, it was just so, um, something of which, you know, I, I was a part of, but also uh, was drawn to try to understand better and make some kind of sense of, even though there was no model for how to go about doing mm. it, which is why I drew on photography and, uh, and you know, moving image um, and text. I kept a kind of, you know, continual journal because I was also dealing with something that was so so raw and so personal. The biggest, the hardest part was, and I think that this is what everybody faces who touches on family um, as subject for their work, is um, how not to cause kind of pain to those that are participant mm -hmm. to that process. And I, and I know that I did. And I did the best that I could at the time to find a kind of a balance between being, you know, um, uncompromisingly honest with myself and with my subject and at the same time compassionate. Mm. Uh, but it was a real wrestle. And uh, I think, you know, with my father, I did achieve that balance. And I think we, you know, the greatest gift of that project was uh, a kind of um, deep acceptance that we grew to have and appreciation that we grew to have for each other for whatever our, you know, individual kind of limits mm. were, um, and a kind of reconciliation, if you will. Yeah. I was very lucky because, uh, that's, that was never a given. Um, but he trusted me and, uh, I think that that helped to, uh, enable me to, um, to, to have a certain license mm. um, to, to step into something that was very messy. Mm -hmm. I guess he probably appreciated you being there as well, though, to, to some extent. Oh, I think he mm. did. I think he did. I mean, I think we were both like, uh, I think he appreciated me being there. And, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the, the single most kind of, in a way, um, the, 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 you know, the, the single most sort of satisfying thing for me was that he, I don't think he, you know, it's no fault to him, but I think, you know, he didn't really, he didn't have the equipment to understand what artwork mm -hmm. was. I don't think he really, I don't think he thought I didn't, that he thought I was lazy, but I just didn't think he was able to under, to sort of relate the work that he did, the slog that he did to, you know, what, what it'd take me to do my, to, to, to do my work. And the fact was that there were times where I showed up for, you know, with my camera before he did. And then he began to see, well, this, there's a discipline right, here. Right. And that, uh, um, and, you know, and then of course, when he saw the finished result, you know, he, he could, um, uh, he, he took stock of it in another way. I mean, maybe if he knew 
the extent you know to which I was going to be um, looking deeply into his story and to the to the world the, to the larger story of which he was a part of. He might have said no because he might have known no better. Yeah, yeah. But I think in the end, uh, you know, it was both for him. And I, I think it was a, you know, it was it was both a vindication, you know, as well as a kind of liberation for him. I think of some of the things that were really, in some sense, haunting him, that he didn't fully have have control over. Mm. You know, as a photographer or as an artist, I think one has to have some measure of detachment. To be able to step outside of um, the, you know, the intense kind of immediacy of whatever it is that you're engaged with. Um, and then enough of detachment to step outside of your own, you know, uh, 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 blinders through your ego or, you know, all the things that you're, you know, you're kind of comfortable knowing. And uh, to see the work, you know, through the eyes of how somebody else might see it. Mm. And so that that project, in a way, kind of uh, um, it was hard, but um, uh, but I think it created a kind of shift, and that made it more than ever important to um, to be clear to myself about what my motivations, you know, were. Which isn't to say I, I had to explain to myself or just, but. You know, why am I setting out to, you know, to commit to making a certain mm. body of work or to go down a certain path? Uh, um, and even if I change my mind about it after I've had the experience, that's fine. It's just what's, what are, you know, what are my in, in, in intentions? Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, and where, where, where do I, you know, where do I end up um, as a result? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got to ask you about American power. I mean, um, I guess your intentions there, perhaps, you know, are more apparent. Um, I think that it was initiated out of a commission from Kathy Ryan, wasn't it? Well, I, I was given an opportunity to do a photographic uh, commissioned essay um, for Kathy um, at the New York Times Magazine about a small town uh, called Cheshire, Ohio, uh, on the Ohio River. It was one of the largest coal-fired power plants uh, in the States. Um, was subject to, um, uh, you know, um, scrutiny um, um, because of the environmental contamination in the, you know, immediate environs. Uh, so it's a lot about the death of a town and the way in which um, the town got bought out uh, by uh, uh, by American Electric Power uh, as a way to stave off future environmental lawsuits and so on. But what got laid out in the town was the the interconnectedness of multiple sources of power and community and individual. Um, that led me to look more broadly um, at our cultural relationship to and codependency on energy, um, the ways in which we were producing it and consuming it, um, and the consequences of that, the economic consequences, but also the manifestations uh, of 
uh, of that way of life that we had been, you know, long kind of indentured to uh, in the American landscape. And so um, it was, you know, it wasn't like, it would have been simple if I just said, oh, I, I just want to photograph um, sites where energy are produced. Mm -hmm. I mean, simple in the sense that I would like, okay, you know, I'd pick 50 different sites and I'd go to photograph them. And some of them I'd be shut out from because of security or law enforcement. But, but I think it was just that, that, uh, but the fact that I think I was shut out uh, from sites that I went to take pictures of, and really from the beginning, even in Cheshire, um, I was uh, told by, you know, by state police and corporate security um, that I couldn't stand in a certain place, even though I was on public lands with a camera. Uh, I had that exact same experience, that, actually. Enough, sorry to interrupt, Mitch. Yeah, no, I, I was, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, that's a, this is a, you know, the thing is that, um, this, you know, um, this is, um, this is not uncommon. Mm. Um, and, you know, in my case, uh, what it did was it forced me to, to look harder at the subject and the ways in which it was all related in some sense, uh, in so far as, um, all of the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the power dominions, um, in play, um, and, you know, which resulted in me, you know, yes, continuing to go to sites where energy would, were, were produced, but also to, um, to try to get inside some of them, um, um, and to look at the complex sort of political interplay between energy and um, its production, consumption, um, and consequences. And uh, of course, it's, it's so it's, it's yeah. uh, well, it's so poignant. You know, more so now than ever. You know, even though it wasn't so long ago, two thousand and what seven to two thousand and nine or something, feels reasonably recently. I shot that between that that work was made between two thousand three and two thousand eight. Okay, two thousand. So yeah. the commission that I the commission I had from Kathy was in. Uh, it was actually late two thousand three. It was really just as I was. Um, kind of um finishing up work on family business mm -hmm. uh and uh, ended the project in 2008 really the last pictures i made were um just um in the month before um, um barack obama was elected right. president and i saw that as a marker i mean there are several projects that, you know, in a way have fallen in certain political periods. And that was a project that was certainly very much about the, um, the Bush-Cheney era. Mm -hmm. um, just the way my project Property Rights is very much a kind of chronicle um, of the Trump years, uh, 2016 and 2020. And so working within a kind of certain political historical period um, has, you know, um, brought a certain you know direction or orientation uh to some of the work that i've made over the years mm. so what about now what about i mean here we are um looking at the potential for another trump presidency um which is kind of mind-blowing to contemplate but there there it is <laughs> and um what are your feelings about like how, how are you inspired by 
you know what's going on in american society as far as the work that you're thinking about um perhaps undertaking or or the work that you're you're working on now you know property rights uh which i finished um in 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 in, in 2020 um which w- was a project a lot about um that you know that instigated questions about um the ownership of land um um that you know uh, that i looked at very pointedly through various narratives around land conflict in the united states um and it made me think hard about um colonialism um and the original appropriation uh um of american lands from indigenous peoples um um and also the importance to protect uh, what little remains of wilderness um, in the United States. And one of the conflicts that was, um, you know, around uh, protecting land um, during the Trump presidency uh, were um, national monument sites. And national monument sites are they, they, they have a certain parallel to national parks, but they're not national parks. They're managed by our Bureau of Land Management, and they're lands appointed by presidents over the years to protect um, um, wilderness lands or lands you know, with natural um, characteristics that um, should be left alone. That led me to think about what remains of um, old growth forests. Old growth forests are forests that were um, that were left alone, that weren't harvested for um, expansion um, and for growth. And so, over the last uh, three four years, I've worked on this project about uh, where I've gotten to walk uh, some exceptional forests, mm. uh, be in wilderness. Um, face the challenge of how to make pictures that in some way could um, see see into the complexity and enigma uh, of time, of what these very self-sustaining uh, uh, ecological worlds are about in a way that we have only begun to understand. Um, And so, you know, I would say looking back at the last 20 years, it's not a total surprise that I put myself in this place and also have, you know, um, benefited so much just on a personal level from these privileged opportunities you know, to, 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 to walk these forests. I mean, it was physically a very challenging project because I'm out there working with a large format you know, field camera and often having to go on trails or be at high altitudes and so on, uh, but also really kind of thrilling too. Um, and as I made mention of earlier, um, I wanted to extend the project by... Uh, by working uh, with moving image one because, well, my photographs are very much a kind of distillation of experience, layered, and, you know, I may, I'm always trying to, to, to achieve photographs that are worthy of all the investment of energy um, um, and commitment that, 
that uh, that 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 an eight by ten camera involves, but with moving image and also working um, in a way horizontally, long frame, sixteen nine, um, it's a very different kind of immersive physical relationship um, to a forest landscape. Um, but sound, movement, uh, um, sounds of nature, and also. Uh, thinking about musical sound um, and its relationship to natural sounds. Uh, I commissioned two musicians to work together collaboratively with me, brought them into force, did you know very um, uh, rich recordings, multi-track recordings, and I'm um, working on an, uh, uh, an extended in in installation piece that one um, um, activates that conversation, but also uh, at the same time as a chronicle uh, of the seasons. Uh, and where I come from in New England, um, and where I've set this particular project is in the Berkshire Mountains, which is where near to where I grew up. These were the these were the forests of my childhood. These were, as I had just read the sh short afterward, and look. When I was, you know, 16, 17, you know, I grew up in a very um, overbearing suburban neighborhood and then went to a very traditional um, boarding mm. school, all male, coat and tie, you know, very regimented. <laughs> you know, I was smoking pot when I was 14. I mean, <laughs> so going out in the woods and just kind of like, you know, uh, finding some kind of escape from it. Uh, to go back and to, you know, to look into these worlds, which, you know, uh, I was, I benefited from spending time with a uh, self-taught forest, you know, master ex researcher specialist. Um, um, you know, the, some of these places too, I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I've been to them 15 times, you know, and, it's just the, it's the, you know, oftentimes if, if I'm going west to photograph and I'm in a site, uh, say, looking at, you know, bristlecone pines in the White Mountains, 11th, I managed to go there three times, but that, you know, they're very, all limited and very, it's, it's wonderful to have this kind of routine to go back in, but mostly to, again, uh, to work with multiple media here and to extend my practice and, and to do it in a way where, you know, at times I'm stumbling. Again, I didn't uh, – I had to figure out, you know, how am I going to shoot this and how am I going to do it so it's going to, you know, it's going to hold up on a big screen and look good but with a modest amount of means. How to make the most of something without necessarily being top-heavy in terms of cost and equipment. Mm. And look, I'm not a fool. I mean, shooting 8 by 10s cost. Yeah. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not fooling myself or anyone. Uh, but – it's, you know, it's not, um, it's made a certain kind of work possible. Mm. Um, and I've, so I've stayed with it and, 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 and accepted the, the, you know, the, the, the challenge of how to pay for those yeah. things, uh, and figured it out. But, uh, uh, so I don't know where I'm going next. I'm also working on an archive with an archive of, uh, logging pictures and, and, uh, as a way to, in a sense, Call attention to, you know, we, we're. I think you know we're we we have a kind of amnesia here in America. We're not good at really looking closely at history. Uh, 
uh, and blurring memory in such a way that it's possible to, in some sense, just go forward in this kind of denial uh, of, of, of our past. And so uh, it is useful to look back at history as a way to understand where we are, you know, uh, um, in the present. Yeah. Well, yeah, including very recent history, let alone the, uh, you know, many years gone by. But yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Amazing. I don't know. I, we, it's too early to talk about where we're headed uh, politically, but it's real. It's real. And we do have to. We have to somehow find a way to. Uh, let's just, you know, I, I think also, look, I think. We need a little bit of luck here. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> photography, you know, har harnesses chance and luck. And I think uh, we just, you know, we uh, we're up against such um, such sophisticated strategy on the right here in the United States that so outsmarted um, the the left. Um, let's see, let's see, let's. We have to bash on and 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 not give absolutely. up. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. In in more ways than one. Now, before we go, how this project of which you speak? When will that sort of come to fruition? When will people be able to see? So uh, the Steidel book, actually, that I'm working on, the monograph is already uh, in process. So it's listed. It's 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 listed for late spring. And, uh, and the project to I have two shows. Yeah, that, so I have two shows with this work, uh, Old Growth, coming up. And one is um, here in, in New York with uh, Yancy Richardson, a gallery that I've worked with for a long time. Um, but also I have a larger show in Torino, Italy, um, at a very young museum called the Gallery d'Italia. And um, um, I will be presenting this work um, in a more full-fledged way, but also in the context of other work oh, that's led up to it uh, in the fall of uh, this coming fall okay. in uh, October 24. Well, I know Gallery d'Italia well. Um, I've been there a few times in recent months and um, and uh, seen a couple of... Oh, really? I saw the Gregory Crudson show there and also uh, saw another one recently. I the people who handle the PR for Gallery d'Italia are sort of friends of the podcast, basically. So I, I, it's lovely to go and oh wow, and, yeah, I've had had some great experiences there. So who knows? Maybe um, maybe it'll all come together, and I'll be over there to see your opening, Mitch. But um, in the meantime, thank you so much. It's been a real joy to have you on, and and I appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and uh, for your thoughtful questions and uh yeah for the opportunity to to look back in a way that i hope has some meaning in the present mm -hmm.